Welcome to Champions of Care, a champion chair podcast and your go-to resource for industry-leading insights regarding medical seating and their applications. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Champions of Care, a champion chair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Make sure that you're subscribing wherever you're listening to your podcast content. Could be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, we're on there. Make sure you're also heading to our website and checking out more services from Champion Chair, as well as more content like podcasts, videos, and articles. So for today's episode of the podcast, we're exploring the quality and standards of care in infusion therapy centers and in the practice of infusion nursing. Until very recently, these centers, critical for chronic diseases that require intravenous medications, had no standards. This lack of cohesive oversight was observed day in and day out by our guest on the podcast today as she traveled the country for a national infusion management company. And that experience and those many visits led her and her current organization to craft the first set of standards for infusion centers. With our podcast today, we're taking a look at infusion centers before and after industry-wide standards were put in place. We're going to break down why these standards are important for quality care and how capital equipment plays a large part in meeting and maintaining those standards. For insight and perspective, I'd like to welcome Katie Morgan, Director of Quality and Standards at the National Infusion Center Association. Katie, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. How are you holding up during uh, this pandemic? It's it's always a little crazy. You got to ask all our guests that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's unavoidable, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, am lucky enough to work from home normally pre-pandemic. Um, so it hasn't been a huge adjustment for me, except that now I have my two and six-year-old children as office mates. Uh, so, so that can make it a little bit challenging sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah, there's uh, there's only one roommate here with me, and he's holed up in his office as well. So things are actually quieter at home for me than they were in the office, which is, uh, <laughs> I, I think, the unique situation. So I'm, I'm right. you know, counting my blessings on that one. Um, all right, so let's jump into the main topic here. You've experienced almost every side of infusion care. Uh, before your work at uh, NICA, is there a shorthand way to say that, Nika? Uh, we usually say NICA. NICA, perfect. All right. So before your work at NICA, uh, I know you oversaw clinical operations for a national infusion center management organization. And while you were a registered nurse before that, you spent the majority of your career involved with infusion therapy. So you've really gotten the whole gamut of infusion care. What was your experience like as a nurse in infusion therapy when there were no industry-wide quality standards. Did that affect your work ever? Uh, was that something that was front of mind for um, you know, medical professionals administering this care? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, so it was always front of mind for me. Um, anyone who knows me or has worked with me um, will tell you I'm, I'm big on rules. I like rules, policies, standards. Uh, I, I think they're really important. Um, and in the acute care settings in hospitals, that's where I started my nursing career, there are rules everywhere. There's a procedure for everything. There are policies about policies. <laughs> There's yeah. no shortage of, of you know, regulation, compliance, audits. 
Um, so when I transitioned from working in the hospital setting to non-hospital settings, um, and then actually opening and, and taking over management of existing infusion suites, um, when I went to the infusion management company, you know, I wanted to see the rules. Show me the rule book. Point me to the standards checklist. You know, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. Um, and I was really uh, surprised and, and shocked that these standards just didn't exist. Uh, it was actually that search that led me to my first conversations with um, Brian Nyquist, who's now my boss, the executive director of uh, NICA. And, you know, I was really just Googling, looking for these rules that didn't exist. And um, when I got in touch with Brian, he confirmed for me that, no, there are not standards in our hmm. industry um, yet. But he said, you know, he agreed that we need them and they were really working hard to develop them. And hey, do you want to help? <laughs> so yeah. that's sort of how I got involved. Yeah. How did that affect your work, uh, both as a, a nurse and then also once your perspective evolved and you entered the management side of infusion care? Uh, I guess, how does the lack of standards actually impact day-to-day -day procedures for medical professionals? So when I was a nurse, um, and I, I'm still a nurse, but I'm not yes, providing direct right. patient care right. anymore. Um, so when I was a nurse providing direct patient care, I wanted the standards um, to tell me how to do my job perfectly and provide you know, the very best care possible to my patients. Um, when I moved to a more administrative role, um, you know, that the purpose of standards, that same purpose is still important, but there's another purpose. You know, it doesn't only guide the practice of caring for patients, um, but standards also protect our industry and our ability to provide care to any patients. Um, if there are no standards, then it's much harder to identify substandard care um, and separate that from the excellent care that most infusion providers try to deliver and do deliver by meeting or even exceeding those standards, right? So if there's no clearly defined criteria for what is okay and what is not okay, then it's much harder to really definitively know when care that was provided has deviated and, and failed to meet that mark. Um, so it's harder to, you know, protect the integrity of the industry and say, these are valid, high quality care settings because they follow these rules. Um, and, you know, anyone who is not following these rules is not meeting the standards, not delivering the care that, that they need to be. So it sounds like when you made your way to NICA, uh, folks knew that these standards needed to be put in place, but they were still being crafted and they weren't there, right? And it was really more up to individuals to maintain that personal level of quality and, uh, I guess, you know, personal standards, but there wasn't really anything industry-wide that you could reference. Why do you think it took so long to conceive of these standards and to get them in place in the first place? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because that's what I wondered too when I looked for them and they weren't there. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to right. know why it's not? Like, why don't they exist? Yeah, I know, there are standards for everything. Um, and if you look back, especially at healthcare standards, their implementation usually or often follows a particular incident. Often it's an unfortunate incident, a tragedy, and then regulators step in and say, okay, this can't ever happen again. We're going to put these standards into place. Um, so I feel fortunate that we're able to put these standards into place uh, proactively. And I think the fact that, you know, the industry, the infusion industry has continued to grow despite not having standards in place is really a testament to the fact that the you know, overwhelming majority of clinicians want to do the right thing. 
um, and they've taken it upon themselves to follow best practices, you know, for their own sake, um, because there just hadn't been external pressure from uh, regulatory bodies to tell them what to do. Like you said, it's really just their own personal standards of care that, um, you know, prevented tragedies and unfortunate incidents from triggering outside agencies to step in and say they're going to set the rules for us. Right. Does this lack of standards extend beyond, um, you know, maybe a a reduction in quality of care? And does it affect um, healthcare professionals and their retention as well or any part of the patient experience besides care? Um, Because I can imagine it might be frustrating for professionals in this space to want to do a job that meets uh, a set of standards or best practices, not have that, feel frustrated by that, and maybe that plays into some of the broader issues of uh, healthcare professional retention that we see throughout the industry. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that kind of domino effect, I guess, of not having those standards? I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a huge um, contributor to to burnout. You know, you hear a lot about healthcare professional burnout, especially nursing burnout. Um, you know, substandard care, I, I don't think it's usually intentional. You know, I've never worked in 12 years, worked with a nurse, doctor, any clinician that I think got out of bed that morning and said, you know what, I think I'm just going to give my patients sort of half-hearted care today. You know, every healthcare worker wants to give their patient the very best care, but if where they work, their practice setting isn't focused on quality and doesn't provide the the training and support and resources to do that um, and isn't making an effort and and giving a lot of attention to that constant engagement and quality assessment and quality improvement efforts, um, then I think you're right. I think healthcare workers will leave and go find a place to work that aligns with their goal, which is just to take excellent care of patients. And, you know, also I'll add that patients... um, Patients pay attention. They're not passive, you know, members of this healthcare journey they're right. on. Patients, you know, they um, they pay attention. They're really actively involved in their care. And they can tell when their care setting or their infusion center is focused on quality or when they're not. And maybe they're just doing the bare minimum to get patients in and out the door. Um, you know, infusion therapy is not pass-fail. Um, patients are more empowered and engaged as their own advocates today than they ever have been. Um, and especially patients like those treated with infusion therapy with these complex chronic diseases, um, you know, they need to have confidence in the care they receive from their, their infusion providers. So I think it, the level of quality does affect more than just the actual technical clinical care they receive, but the whole experience. All right, that's enough time spent on the pre-standards world because luckily we now are in the post-standards world. They (laughs) exist and they are now influencing uh, infusion care. And in the last year, uh, NICA was the org that developed the industry's first set of standards of care specifically for infusion therapy and for outpatient infusion sites. So were you involved in the standards creation process? Uh, and if so, you know, break down what that process looked like, how you began to hone what that standardization would look like, uh, and and why did NICA decide to take on this task of being the ones to set up the standards for the whole industry? So I was involved in the development of the standards. Um, like I had mentioned, my first conversations with Brian where um, they had started working on the standards, you know, before I um, was aware of NICA or um, joined their advisory committee. So, um, you know, despite 
Brian's best efforts and NICA's best efforts, the development of the standards wasn't gaining momentum quickly. There was a lot of other stuff going on, I'll say, in the infusion world. You know, it's growing, it's expanding. There are so many infusion medications coming out all the time, um, and it just was sort of getting pushed to the side. Um, so when I joined the advisory committee, um, I was one of a few additions to the group at the time that brought on more clinical members. Um, you know, there were a lot of C and still are a lot of C-suite executives in that advisory committee. Um, and some are clinical and some are not. So when I joined the advisory committee, um, several other clinical members joined at the same time to really help drive the standards development process um, and prioritize that. So that has been our priority um, since that time. The, our first meeting was in Austin, Texas, um, a whole bunch of people sitting around at a really big table all day long. Um, and we really started this iterative process of you know, discussion, research, review, uh, we started in person, and then this carried on remotely um, for months and months until we'd reached a point where we felt, you know, the standards were were ready for our release, which was uh, last year, just prior to our uh, first annual meeting last June. Well, NICA's mission, to maybe oversimplify it a bit, is to increase patient access to affordable, high-quality infusion care, you know, when and where they need it. Um, so in that pursuit, it was really important to us that the quality of care didn't vary across care settings. Um, you know, we weren't looking to preserve, protect, and expand access to just some form of infusion care. We wanted to increase access to excellent infusion care and, and continue to raise that bar. Um, patients should be able to expect to receive the same high-quality care regardless of where they receive the care, if it's a hospital outpatient infusion department or their rheumatologist office, you know, the, the standard is the standard. Um, and NICA saw that and, and knew it was important. I'm sure an important part to crafting um, the set of quality and standards for the industry uh, was getting feedback from professionals in the industry and understanding what are some of the standards that would make your life easier and would make uh, patient care more effective and just better all around. Um, was that part of your approach to defining quality and standardization as a whole for infusion therapy and infusion centers? And how did that play into your broader approach to starting to craft those standards and, uh, and feeling like you could really feel proud and confident of the ones you came up with? The advisory committee worked to develop the standards um, by first looking at the validated resources and existing standards that are out there maybe in similar fields um, and look at how well that applied to our care setting, and that helped us to identify where the gaps were. So if there were existing standards or guidelines, uh, maybe a, a commonly known example is the safe injection practices guidance put out by the CDC several years ago. Um, you know, we didn't need to recreate the wheel. We referenced and incorporated those because they apply to our care settings. Um, but there, you know, infusion is a really unique vertical in healthcare. And so there are many areas where there was just no consensus um, or not even controversy. Controversy, There's just no information available. Um, so that's where we went through that iterative process I described earlier and um, to look at the standards of practice. So not necessarily how it should be done, but just the beginning step of how is it being done out there in the world. Um, and then we would go to the research, the literature, you know, why do we do it this way? Does the data support it? What evidence do we have to say that doing it this way makes sense? Or, you know, on the other hand, what evidence do we have to say there's a better, safer way? Um, because the, you know, the standards of practice are not the same as the standards of care. Standards of practice are the way 
people commonly do things. Um, and the standard of care is the way it should be done. So if you're examining a process and asking why it's done a certain way and the answer you come up with is, that's the way we've always done it, um, then you need to go back to the drawing board and, and do some research because you know, true evidence-based care is grounded in the data, not in you know, historical patterns of practice. So then for those individual sites, um, do uh, the different quality assurance department members establish their own guidelines for safety and cleaning uh, once there has been the state level audit um, on, you know, let's say a specific piece of equipment or just general um, uh, facility uh, compliance? Or, you know, is that power, I guess, granted to each facility where they get to tweak individual things to meet their care best? I guess, you know, what, what does that dynamic look like in practice? So overall, there is, um, the answer really depends, I think, on the location. So, you know, like I said, in those large hospital or large health systems, um, there are plenty of regulations. In the private physician offices and freestanding centers, there really isn't a national unifying set of standards aside from, um, you know, the NICA standards of care. There are state right. Departments of Health, uh, maybe state boards of pharmacy or departments of professional licensure. Um, it really varies by location. That set some standards um, and might have some requirements for types of um, equipment or cleaning or you know do an audit to identify issues, things like that. But for the most part, I think it really is left up to the each group and each state as to what they're going to do. Another important part of an effective and sanitary care environment that we haven't quite touched on yet, but it's where I want to take the rest of the conversation, is focus more on proper gear, and that being an essential part of maintaining those standards. Are there standards set by health systems for uh, capital equipment, such as beds, wheelchairs, and patient seatings, um, specifically for infusion care centers? And if so... Are the standards specified and required to be met for gear, or do they serve more as a guideline? And go ahead and break those uh, standards down for me. Sure. So uh, the state departments of health, boards of pharmacy, those regulators I mentioned earlier, their rules, regulations are not optional. They're required for licensure. Um, so for some capital equipment like infusion pumps, vital signs monitors, you know, those class two and three medical devices, um, they're subject to strict FDA regulations. Um, but for things like infusion chairs, um, there are best practices that can be called from different professional associations. Um, like one that comes to mind is APIC, the Association for Professionals in Infection Control. Um, and they have some guidelines, but they're not an enforcement body. Um, so they just put out best practices. You know, best practices would say you shouldn't place patients in plush open weave fabric chairs that can't be disinfected. Um, but in reality, there most often isn't some watchdog, you know, preventing a practice from deciding to seat their infusion patients in plush woven chairs or beanbag chairs or whatever they feel like doing that day. Um, actually, in my own primary care provider's office, the waiting room looks like it could be someone's living room. You know, there's a fabric sofa and upholstered rocking chairs. Um, and it's very cozy, but it's not not great for infection prevention purposes. So why are the the standards uh, set up that way for capital equipment uh, versus the rest of the industry? 
and and their you know the the standards for just general infusion care. So I think the lack of of standards and enforcement in infusion care sort of goes back to what I alluded to earlier, which was that we haven't had um, that big impetus for changes. Uh, there was several years ago a, a compounding facility in Massachusetts that um, had some contamination issues with a batch of injectable um, steroids that they created, produced, and many patients got sick and, and died. And so that you know tragedy resulted in all these regulations um, and increased enforcement efforts for compounding of IV products. Um, you know, that's an example of the type of situation that usually triggers these regulations to come into play. So um, the fact that the infusion world, knock on wood, hasn't had something like that, I think is one of the main reasons that we aren't seeing that, um, that those outside regulators coming in and, and dictating what types of furniture and infusion pumps and things, you know, we can have. So then how important is the sourcing of equipment that meets um, even just the general required and specific needs of an acute facility? Uh, How does that impact care? And how has that sourcing search evolved now that there are at least a basic level of uh, quality and standard assurances for infusion care therapy? So now that we have some standards in place, I think it gives those, uh, maybe the smaller groups that don't have a centralized um, purchasing department, it gives them sort of a list of things to look at when they're evaluating a product or um, something they're looking to bring into their practice to see how this product or, you know, device or whatever stacks up um, against those standards. They know the questions to ask, they know what to look for, um, because a lot of times it's not not something you would think of, like the example of chairs. You know, you want them to be comfortable, um, but you also have to be able to clean them and they have to be safe. (laughs) Definitely. And, you know, of course, we can't go the whole podcast without mentioning it. I know several infusion centers now choose uh, champion chairs for their infusion suites. Uh, What are some of the main reasons that you've seen why uh, champion chairs have been the ones to better meet these uh, set of standards and quality assurances for this industry? Yeah, we, we definitely do see champion chairs in uh, many infusion suites. And it's, you know, it's not just because they look nice. <laughs> right. um, first, <laughs> Yes, that's, that's an added benefit. <laughs> they yeah. do. They look great. But, um, you know, that's really not what's what's most important, as you can imagine. Um, first, I'll say if you've ever had a seat in one, you'll know why infusion centers like them. Um, they're really comfortable. And comfort isn't the only consideration, but it is really important. Um, you know, some infusion appointments will require a patient to be seated in that chair for a full day, you know, six to eight hours. Um, they have to be comfortable. I actually had a a personal experience in a former role, um, where the comfy infusion recliner at one of the suites was replaced with a, um, combination exam table that could be lowered down into a chair. Um, but it was very, firm. It didn't recline. The patients couldn't put their feet up. Um, And there were patients who receive really long infusions frequently, and they were prepared to reschedule um, their infusions or get their care elsewhere instead of sit in that exam table chair for hours. Um, So, you know, the it's not just a luxury to have a comfortable chair. It was really a requirement for a lot of patients. And and I'm happy to say that story had a happy ending. We got the comfy chairs back. Um, I think another reason that infusion centers choose champion chairs is that they hold up really well um, to the type of cleaning and disinfection 
that has to take place in infusion centers. Um, you know, large, busy infusion centers have been pleased with the life that they're able to get out of that investment into a quality chair. Um, and I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the individual parts of the chair can be replaced instead of the whole chair. Um, so if a, a particular piece has an unfortunate early demise, then they can just replace the arm instead of the whole chair. It makes it um, much more cost effective for them. And I think another reason practices might choose uh, champion chairs is there are a lot of infusion practices that have a significant population of patients with mobility issues. Um, you know, whether that's a, a rheumatology practice with patients with you know, rheumatoid arthritis or a neurology practice, patients arriving in wheelchairs, those practices uh, and their patients really benefit from the style of chair that Champion has where the um, side of the chair, the arm can be removed. It sort of swings open like a car door um, and it swings out of the way to facilitate the proper patient transfer from a wheelchair into a recliner. You know, as a speaking as a nurse who's used really poor body mechanics to lift patients out of one chair and transfer them to another on multiple occasions, um, you know, I can personally attest to, number one, how foolish it is to do that and how much safer it is for the nurse and the patient to have the ability to do that proper transfer. Um, so having the side of the chair, the arm sort of swing out of the way, you know, really facilitates that. So that longevity, that ease of use for caregivers, um, how does that help meet these newly established quality and standards set by NICA? Um, you know, has Champion reached out or collaborated with NICA at all to make sure that, uh, you know, their gear fits into these standards? And uh, how does that impact day-to-day -day with help, uh, you know, helping the professionals in infusion care and infusion therapy meet those standards as well? Uh, the Champion chairs stack up really well um, with this infection prevention and control checklist. Um, they're upholstered with a um, a vinyl or non-porous material, so it can be disinfected with hospital-grade products, uh, and it's able to withstand how harsh those cleaners can be. Um, you know, for other chairs which are marketed to be used in the home, they're not meant to be wiped down with a cavicide wipe every hour, five days a week. Um, also, the the chairs open up, recline really far, and this way the sides swing away. All the surfaces that come in contact with a patient are able to be cleaned and disinfected, which is really hard in a chair, especially a recliner chair. Um, but that's something that um, Champion has in place already, you know, separate from the development of any standards that's um, more in line with hospital standards that were already in existence. I think that's why you see Champion chairs in so many um, hospital uh, infusion centers and dialysis centers. Um, and then the other thing, champion chairs have the ability, there's a little handle on the back that you could use to quickly lay a patient down flat, um, what we call the Trendelenburg position, uh, if, if we find ourselves in a situation where we need to do that. So there are different scenarios, like if a patient's blood pressure maybe gets a little too low or they get lightheaded, um, it's important to get them into that flat position really quickly to optimize circulation and, you know, help get blood to vital organs like the brain. Um, but not all infusion chairs have that feature. So it's one you, you know, you hope you don't have to use it that often. But if you're in a situation like that, then you'll be really glad that you have a chair that can go into Trendelenburg um, really quickly. Because the alternative is you have to get that patient onto the floor. Um, 
as quickly and gracefully as possible. So, you know, pulling a little lever to flatten them out is much safer for everyone involved. So let's go ahead and wrap this up with some timely news. It's hard to avoid talking about this. We brought it up at the beginning, but we're in a pandemic. Uh, and I think it's essential to contextualize this, especially on a healthcare podcast. So as the COVID-19 pandemic surges in the United States, what has NICA's response been to support infusion centers and patients? Do your standards um, you know, help make that care safer during something like this? And have there been any last-minute tweaks or um, adjustments in messaging or in the actual standards themselves? So NICA has really been all hands on deck, fully engaged um, in supporting infusion patients and providers through this crisis from day one. You know, we represent a really unique group of patients. Um, a lot of infusion patients' treatments alter their immune system and put them in that high-risk category for having a more uh, severe or a more complicated uh, COVID-19 disease course if they were to get it. Um, but at the same time, the treatments that these patients are receiving are not optional. They're not elective procedures that the patient could just say, you know, I think I'm just going to stop my infusions for now. I'll just stay home and stay safe. Um, if they stop their treatments, then their disease can and usually will become more active and progress, and those consequences are usually irreversible, um, you know, with huge impacts on their health and quality of life, and not to mention the, the financial impacts. Um, and then worst of all, in the setting of this public health emergency, um, these patients, if their disease flares, then it's going to cause them to require more healthcare services and potentially put them in exactly the place we don't want them to be. You know, not only are they now out in public, um, but they're in settings with a, a high risk for being exposed to COVID-19, you know, should they need to, to go to the emergency department or something like that. Um, so they're, you know, at higher risk for being exposed. And then they're also adding to the, the patient volume and the associated burden that's already on the healthcare system that's, you know, kind of maxed out. So um, it was really clear to us right away that we needed to issue some guidance to make patients feel safe and then also to help the infusion community um, sort of navigate the million guidelines that are out there quickly to continue to providing care while keeping patients safe. Um, and then, you know, also to the broader healthcare community to say, hey, you know, there are going to be a lot of patients who would normally be in the hospital or maybe a post-acute care setting, um, like a, a long-term care facility, that are now going to be discharged earlier than they might have otherwise. Um, and those patients will need services that they were getting either in the hospital or long-term care, um, which oftentimes is infusion therapy, um, you know, maybe an extended course of IV antibiotics or something like that. So not only did we have to issue guidance on how to keep patients safe in the infusion centers, but also how to sort of expand and facilitate access to account for all those patients that are going to be diverted um, into these centers and help to proactively offload the burden that's placed on hospital systems right now. You know, we sort of see that as our way to help um, in the crisis with associated with, you know, you keep hearing the phrase, um, surge capacity, medical surge capacity, when a healthcare system as a whole has too many patients and not enough resources. So NICA can't build hospitals, but we can, you know, preserve the infusion delivery channel so that other healthcare sectors can focus on, you know, focus their resources on this, this wave of patients that need really 
high levels of care right now. And just to end back on the note of uh, NICA's standards, how have those quality standards that have been put in place, how have they helped with the response to COVID-19? And what kind of case does it make for having a unified set, uh, you know, set of standards for uh, each subsection of healthcare? The the yeah the standards have um, been very helpful and handy to have to say the least. You know, as hospitals are trying to expand their capacity to care for these unprecedented numbers of critically ill patients. Um, Outpatient infusion departments are often one of the the groups getting moved to alternate sites. Um, And that's, you know, to both protect immunocompromised patients because these are sometimes oncology infusion patients as well. Um, And also to open up that space to be able to use it to treat uh, patients with COVID-19. So having the standards um, along with our, you know, COVID-19 specific guidance have provided sort of a cursory checklist of sorts to help um, determine what space would and would not make an acceptable temporary location for an infusion center. Um, You know, things that even the most well-intentioned healthcare providers might not think of, um, you know, when when looking at a space. Like, no, you you can't prepare infusion medications um, for administration next to a sink or near an open window. Um, You know, some of the people making the decisions on when and where and how to relocate infusion centers are not necessarily involved with infusion therapy on a daily basis. So they can look to these standards to um, guide their their planning. And I actually had a, an interesting conversation the other day um, with an infusion center operator um, who's in the, the eye of the storm right now, I guess, in New York City. Um, and he had been approached by a hospital asking him um, for guidance on how they how that hospital could put up sort of a pop-up infusion suite so they could clear out their infusion center to care for other patients. So knowing that he was a um, you know successful infusion center operator, they, they looked to him. And so this, um, this gentleman had indicated to us that he was looking to NICA standards to help that hospital facilitate um, moving this infusion suite temporarily in a way that, that is still safe. All right. Thank you so much for your thoughts on today's podcast. Again, we've been chatting with Katie Morgan, Director of Quality and Standards at the National Infusion Center Association. Katie, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Champions of Care. Any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, no, Daniel, really, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's, you know, I always like an opportunity to sort of geek out about uh, Infusion Center standards of care. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Champions of Care. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, uh, you can make sure to check out our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you're also heading to Champion Chairs Podcast for a full gamut of our products, our services, and also more content, including podcasts, videos, and articles. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. (laughs) 